<clears throat> well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter... I'm waiting. Okay. Okay. Four people are following. That is excellent. Chapter 47. <laughs> Now, per the norm, now that you're there, go to Proverbs. <clears throat> we're going to go back to Genesis, okay? This is not just a, a drill. Um, we're going to go back to Genesis. But go to Proverbs chapter 1. There is a method to my madness that I hope you recognize at the end of this message. Chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of uh, Proverbs. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and discipline. To understand the sayings of understanding. To receive discipline that leads to insight. Righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple. To the youth, knowledge and discretion. Let the wise man hear and increase in learning. And a man of understanding will acquire guidance to understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Ignorant fools despise wisdom and discipline. And go to chapter 3, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 13. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who obtains discernment. For her profit is better than the profit of silver, and her produce better than fine gold. She is more precious than pearls, and nothing you desire compares with her. Length of days in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and glory. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her pathways are peace. She is a tree of life to those who seize her, and all those who hold, fat, hold her fast are blessed. Yahweh, by wisdom, founded the earth by discernment. He established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps were split up, and the skies drip with dew. My son, let them, go, let them not deviate from your eyes. Guard sound wisdom and discretion, so they will be life for your soul, and grace for your neck. All right, so back to Genesis. So I'm starting here on purpose, very purposeful, because <clears throat> for starters, I find it fascinating what the world puts value on and what God puts value on. It's just an interesting observation that's kind of fun to make periodically. And just look and go, what does the world consider to be uh, important? valuable, something worthy of your time, your money, your effort, and then come to the scripture and say, what does God consider valuable? What is worthy of your time, effort, money, etc.? And the scripture with utter clarity speaks about the valuable, the invaluableness, there's a fun word, of wisdom. And how precious it is how sweet it is. It's incalculable how 
how important it is to be wise as the, as the Scripture speaks. Now, I just gave you two short little portions in Proverbs 1 and Proverbs 3, but there's all kinds of other passages that speaks to this. And we know in James chapter 1, it says, if anybody lacks wisdom, let them ask the Lord and he will give generously. God is the source of wisdom. Please notice that wisdom, the beginning of wisdom, is the fear of the Lord. And so this idea of wisdom and its value is one of great importance, should be one of great importance to every last one of us. Simply put, wisdom is the living out of true knowledge of God, ourselves, and His created world. Living out, the living out, of the true knowledge of God, ourselves, and His created world. This is the action taken in light of what we know. And this morning, we once again see profound, God-given wisdom on display in Joseph. Profound, God-given wisdom on display in Joseph. So Genesis chapter 47, verse 13. Now, there was no food in all the land because the famine was very heavy, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. The land was famished. It was falling apart and was languishing because of the famine. Now, Roger, when we were in Kenya a number of years ago, they were experiencing a famine. This is quite often there. And as we were there, there was a time where we were giving some food to some people and helping out some folks that were part of these churches And it was, I guess for me, one of the very first in-your-face experiences of utter desperation, where they were looking for food for that day, water for that day, and seeing what a famine accomplishes, what it can do, the absolute devastation of a people, grueling heat, no food, The crops have been eaten by bugs or destroyed by the lack of water or some other thing. And there's a level of hopelessness that just strikes a people to their core. And desperate people do interesting things. And so I have in my head a little bit of a visual. You probably do too at some point in your life, whether it was through a a particular country or something, maybe even in our own country, or something on TV or in a movie. You have some image in your mind of the devastation of a famine and how it can leave people just absolutely coming apart at the seams. Well, that's what's on the shoulders of Joseph. Remember, Joseph has been placed as second in command under Pharaoh. He just had the greatest family reunion of his life, And remember, for seven years of plenty, they've been storing up a pile of grain and they were getting everything ready because seven years of great famine was coming. Well, those years are here and Egypt is devastated by this incredible famine. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to think because I can can say famine 19 times and read it over and over and it does not hit. But I want you to think of families, little kids, starving. Can see the the their backbone because they just lost so much weight and the heat's just beating on them. And Joseph goes to bed and wakes up and goes to bed and wakes up knowing this is everywhere. 
And Pharaoh has said, Joseph, you are in charge. I want you to take good care of this. Joseph, under godly wisdom and in godly wisdom, has prepared for this. But those years are so severe, there is trauma on this government official, Joseph. Look at 14. And Joseph gathered all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. So remember, they're purchasing the grain uh, from Joseph, from Pharaoh. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. Then the money came to an end in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan. So all the Egyptians, read that, that all is a huge word. All the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food for why should we die in your presence? For our money is gone. Then Joseph said, give up your livestock and I will give you food for your livestock since your money is gone. The people became bankrupt and cannot buy grain. The people sell their livestock in order to buy food, in order to survive. Now, this is kind of like uh, uh, tears as you move up to levels of desperation. At first, he said, come and buy the food and we will sell it back to you. We will sell the food to you. Okay, then they've been doing that. As they've been purchasing, we've run out of money. And the famine is not letting up. We're still in great devastation. So why should we die? Tell us what to do. Sell all your livestock to us. Okay, we'll sell all of our livestock to you. And they gave him food. Now listen how long that lasts. Joseph said, verse 16, Give up your livestock and I will give you food for your livestock since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses and the flocks and the herds and the donkeys. And he fed them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. Then that year came to an end and they came to him the next year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that our money has come to an end and the livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left for my Lord except our bodies and our land. So all the people have come to him and unfolded this in front of him. Again, I want you to hear that level of desperation. What the human nature does for self-preservation. What lengths you'll go to, to save yourself from death. Or probably, not probably, most likely, save your children from death. Okay, we have given you all of our money. We have no more money. Our family's dying. We've given you all of our livestock. Our family's dying. We want to give you our land. And we want to give you ourselves. Because we are either going to die or we're going to go this route. Food and seed were provided for the people to eat and sow into the field. If you look down, uh, verse 19, I want to read that. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we and our land will be slaves to Pharaoh. So give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. 
that is quite a high level of desperation if you think about what they have just brought before Joseph here. To say that we and our land will be owned by you. It really tells you about the devastation of the famine, the great devastation of the famine and what has been taking place among these people. They are absolutely distraught. And so, Joseph, take us in as your slave and take our land as well. Look at verse 20. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For every Egyptian sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. Thus the land became Joseph's. Okay, you're following along, right? The land became Pharaoh's. Remember, Joseph doesn't own it. He's not the man. He's the second in command. He's here serving the Lord, but also serving Pharaoh. As for the people, he moved them to the cities from one end of Egypt's border to the other end. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had an allotment from Pharaoh, and they, are, and they ate off the allotment which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. This is an interesting fact if you follow along. Everybody sells their land, and they say they want to put themselves in subjection to him as well, except the pagan clergy. So remember, when it says priests, we're not talking about the priests of Israel. This is the priests of Egypt. These are pagan religionists who have come and said, uh, apparently there's a ex, um, an agreement between Pharaoh and these priests that their land is an allotment to them, and apparently there's like some sort of food allotment to them as well, as he's taking care of these pagan priests in the land. And so when you think about, okay, Everything that's on the desk, Joseph's desk, and thinking about everything that's put on him. You have the priests, there's an allotment for them, they're going to be cared for in this way. You have all these people, they're doing this, it's got to be done this way. Some of the pressures in this man's life are pretty overwhelming. Matter of fact, it'd be a fun thing to just write a book, Joseph's Desk, that just came to me. Um, Somebody write that book. And as you're walking through there, seeing, wow, Joseph has tremendous pressure on him. But one thing we've seen in this guy since day one is wisdom. I would argue one of the only things that was totally unwise was when he went and told his brothers about the dreams. But here, we don't see a flinching in him. Matter of fact, what's fascinating to me is in the text, it doesn't really tell us that he felt under pressure. We're not told that he was fearful. We're not told that he was scared. All those things that I would expect was there is not even mentioned in the text. And so look at 21. As for the people, he moved them to the cities from one end of Egypt's border to the other end. So everybody is taken off their land and put together in the cities. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had an allotment from Pharaoh, and they ate off the allotment which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have today bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now, here is seed for you, and you may sow the land. Now, there's great wisdom here, too. Notice that he does not simply say, I have you, and now it's just going to be slave labor, and we're going to do harm to you. No, there's, there's even wisdom in this in how he handles the situation and how he works with these people. 
I want to read this quote um, by Henry Morris. I found this helpful. <clears throat> he says, in effect, this amounted to a permanent annual tax, income tax, of 20% of gross income. This is not excessive in terms of present-day standards, especially since these farmers had no rent to pay, no cost of investment or upkeep. In fact, nothing except their own personal expenses. Pharaoh and the governmental bureaucracy administered by Joseph finance all government functions on the 20%. Presumably, a similar equitable arrangement was provided for those specific occupations other than farming because he also took care of Joseph's family. Also this one. Some people have felt that this was a scheme of Joseph, not only to get wealth, but also to enslave the people. However, it was their proposal, not Joseph's. And whatever gain was involved accrued to Pharaoh, not to Joseph. It is true that it created what amounted to a feudalistic economy, but the alternative, that of placing everyone on a dole system, would have destroyed personal and national morale would have bankrupted the government and probably would have culminated in social anarchy. Could you imagine? The stores of food would soon have been depleted and mass starvation would have followed. The people had learned to trust Joseph. Now, that's a key that I don't want you to miss. Joseph is not a bad guy. Joseph is not somebody who has been seen as a, as a tyrant who wants to hurt people or get people. Um, I'll show that in just a few moments, looking a little further into the text in their response to Joseph and what he's doing here. They're not shaking their fist at him saying, oh, you government, you take all my money. That's not the response that comes from these people. But I find it fascinating that in this moment, Joseph seeks to employ them, not simply dole out food to them. Look, look down at your Bible. Look what he does here. Uh, 23. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have today bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now, here is seed for you. Notice, not food. There is food there too, I believe, but also here's seed for you, and you may sow the land. In other words, I have work for you to do. And it will be at the harvest, you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh and four-fifths shall be your own for seed of the field and for your food and for those of your household and for food for your little ones. And look at their reaction. So they said, you've kept us alive. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's slaves. And Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, valid to this day, which shows this was not a one-and-done kind of thing. This carried on, valid to this day when Moses is writing this, that Pharaoh should have the fifth, only the land of the priest did not become Pharaoh's. So, you could read this a couple different ways, I think. I don't think you could interpret it a couple different ways, but if you were a super cynic, you could read it a, a certain way where you could read it and come away going, Joseph is a tyrant. These people are starving. They're in so much danger. He should just unfold the vats and just dump the food on them and let them fill their basket and go back home. And that way he's loving and kind and takes care of them. I would argue that that is a knee-jerk reaction. 
Rather, what does he do? He says, okay, okay, I understand. You are in dire straits. So here's what I'd like to see done. I'm going to lend you, I'm going to give you seed, I'm going to give you food for you and for your family. I want you to go and then sow the fields, sow the lands. And what you reap from there, four-fifths of that is for you and for all of your family, and one-fifth will come back as a tax to Pharaoh. So that way, you are contributing to the needs, you are saved, you are healthy, your kids will live, and when this famine passes, you will be in much better place. I know that that word slave is one that rubs us wrong in our culture, and I understand that. That makes all the sense in the world that it would. But I would argue that this type of slavery here has more of an employment aspect to it in what he did here with the Egyptians. And the Egyptians' reaction, I think, tells the tale that they did not come back and say, I can't believe he would treat us so poorly. They came back and treated him as the rescuer. Joseph, you have rescued us. He didn't rob them of their self-respect. He didn't mutilate them. He didn't destroy them. He didn't just see them waste away. He provided for them in such a wise way. And remember, there's no gain to Joseph here in the sense of Joseph is not one who is gaining financial gain or great prestige, or anything of that nature. No, rather, what's going on here is Joseph, in godly wisdom, is dealing with quite a severe predicament. I really liked Kent Hughes' statement here. He says, as royal serfs, the Egyptians paid 20% to the crown, which was a normal percentage, even low in its day. 40% was not uncommon in Mesopotamia. And there are examples as high as 60%. The happy result in Egypt was that the coffers were overflowing with foreign wealth, bolstering the economy. As the famine worsened, everyone in Egypt was equitably fed, and the 20%, no one complained about it. Joseph was Egypt's national hero. They all would have been dead had he not been the man in place at that moment in history. Now, why is that so key? Because later on, he's already said this once, but he's going to say it even more direct in chapter 50, when he looks his brothers in the face and says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. What good? Many, many, many lives have been saved because God in his grace had me in this place in Egypt at this moment for the sake of all these people. I would also argue for the sake of his own brothers, for the sake of his father, as they came down to get grain from him as well. And so there are knee-jerk reactions Joseph could have taken that he did not take. Remember, wisdom, wisdom is the living out of the knowledge of God, ourselves, and the created world. And I would argue Joseph acted out in godly wisdom here and did not knee-jerk under the pressure of such an intense situation. I'll return to that in a little bit, but first let's keep going. <clears throat> now if you look, um, verse 27. I got my notes all jumbled, so hang on one second. Verse 27 says, Now Israel lived in the land of Egypt, in Goshen, and they took possession of property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. 
And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. Then the days of Israel to die drew near. And he called his son Joseph and said to him, Please, if I have found favor in your sight, place your hand under my thigh and deal with me in loving kindness and truth. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but I will lie down with my fathers and you will carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. Then he said, swear it to me. So he swore to him. Then Israel bowed in worship at the head of his bed. It's kind of interesting. There's a couple different times. If you've been tracking with Jacob as, or Israel as we're walking through it almost feels a couple different times like he'll die in, that, in the next few sentences or verses, and he just doesn't go. And then he goes further, and it's like, okay, what did he say when he saw Joseph? I can now die in peace in, in 17 years. Uh, I'll do that. I'll do that in 17 years. But there's something in his mind and heart, in Jacob's mind and heart, that there's something he's, he senses that I'll be gone soon. I'll be gone soon. And he keeps moving forward, moving forward. And all that time, so think about this, as they weathered a good portion of the severity of the famine in the land of Goshen, in the midst of that and in the midst of this, this time span of his life, God profoundly blessed Israel. Profoundly blessed Israel. When you think of the dire straits that they're in and what took place there, I mean, Scripture, its way of, of speaking sometimes, it, it doesn't go, uh, or it, it seems so um, generalized, where it says, Israel lived in the land in Goshen, and they took possession of the property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. So there they are in the land that was given to them in Goshen. God has provided for them. He has preserved them. He has cared for them. Not only that, he is now growing them. He's expanding them. Why is that so important? Because you're hearing in that verse the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham and to Isaac and now to Jacob, where he said to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to leave your land. I want you to go to a land that I will show you. And when you go to that land, I will make you a numerous people and I will bless every nation, every family through your seed. As a promise made to Abraham. Remember, Abraham called in the air Chaldees. He's all by himself. He's a pagan worshiper at that time. God calls him, tells him to go. His response, okay. And he goes, and God says, I'll show you the land. How will I know the land? When, he, when you get there, you'll know. I'll tell you. And God, in his grace, grows this man. But it all starts with a promise of the living God to Abraham. And then we come to Isaac. And what a curvy road to follow that guy's life, an even more curvy road to follow Jacob's life. And so some folks have looked at the time when Jacob and his family goes to Goshen and they say, you're leaving the land, you're, you're going away from the promises of God. I liked how one guy said it. He said, going to Goshen was not disobedience, but it was a time of incubation. There was a time where God is going to preserve and grow and give greater health to Israel. And we're told that in this very text, that while they're there, they became numerous. They're becoming fruitful. They're multiplying. God is growing a great people before our very eyes in the text. His promises are being realized to some extent. 
Now, what I find so amazing is if you could bring Abraham forward and say, Abraham, look at, what, look at, the, look at the path God chose for your son Isaac and your grandson Jacob to come here now. And so what, what do I believe Jacob's doing here? What, what does it matter where you're buried, Jacob? Why are you bringing this up? I'm convinced this is an act of faith because Jacob is saying to his son Joseph, I wish to be buried in the land promised to my fathers. Not only that, I, I, I would argue he wishes to see his family return back to the land promised to his fathers. Egypt is not that land. This is not where God has called us to go. This is not the fulfillment of the promise for Abraham. This is a parenthesis for the sake of God's people, and now they're going to be taken back. And so Jacob says, Joseph, come here. In the most intimate of moments, and the hand under the thigh thing, there's, there's something in reference to that, of the, how solemn of a moment it is. Remember, we saw that earlier with Abraham and Eliezer when he made Eliezer promise that as he went, he would go and find a bride for Isaac. And so Jacob says, put your hand under my thigh, and I want you to promise me. Even though I die here, you take me back and bury me there with my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. Because that is the promise of God. See, it's not some weird um, thing where he's being, uh, <clears throat> trying to be memorable of his family or anything of that nature. It's not the burial place for him that he's concerned about. We're told that in Hebrews 11. He was looking for a city not made with hands. Rather, what is being done here is he is setting a principle by faith, a testimony to his family. That's where God promised and that's where I wish to be buried. Joseph's reaction? Yes, sir. You bet. This request of Jacob's is an act of faith. Jacob wants to be in Canaan, buried with his fathers, to set a clear call on his people to return to this land. The land of Goshen is not the land of promise. Goshen is a temporary location where God was powerfully protecting and multiplying the people of Israel. Jacob is doing this out of faith in God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and now himself. God promised to give them this land to make them a numerous people and to bless every nation, family through his seed. And what is just like knocks me off my feet is that seed there are not just, are not the, the children, these children, but it's Christ. This has a far more expansive application in this text. That seed of Jacob, or that seed of Abraham, is not Isaac. That seed of Isaac is not Jacob. That seed of Jacob is not, go down the list, the 12 tribes. That seed of Abraham ultimately finds its complete spiritual fulfillment in Christ. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all promises here in the text. And so I believe that there is a great, grand, glorious explanation in Romans chapter 4, Galatians chapter 3 and 4, that explains that in great detail. And so to see Jacob act in faith in the promises of God just takes my mind further and further to where that promise really finds its ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus So let me land the plane here. And it might catch you off guard where I'm going to go with the application this morning. But follow with me. 
wise actions and decisions made and strong trust in God's care and sovereign provision are not contradictory to one another. One more time. Wise actions and decisions made and strong trust in God's care and provision are not contradictory to one another. Throughout Joseph's life, he is a man of unusual godly wisdom and simultaneously always gives glory to God for his intervention in it all. Joseph has an unwavering trust in the God of the details, A. Joseph's trust in God's sovereign care never causes him to be lazy or lax in his action in wisdom, B. His work, his work effort or um, ethic, his pursuit of godly wisdom, his decisions being made are not contrary to his trust in the sovereignty of God. See, this is what's so amazing to me. Theologically, is when this is all wrapped up, he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, and he had it all according to his plan. But he never took that as a crutch or as a means to say, therefore, I don't have to think. I don't have to prepare. I don't have to be wise. See, this is tough, is that at times we make it sound contradictory. Well, are you going to prepare? Are you going to trust God? Answer? Yes. Yes, I'm doing both. Why? Because the Scripture's screaming out both. It's all over the place. This is what I find so fascinating in the Psalms when the psalmist says, put not your trust in princes. Put not your trust in horses. Does that mean we sell our horses? No, you just don't put your trust in the horse. It doesn't mean that you're not wise in what you do. It doesn't mean that you're not careful in what you do. But it means that you do not trust in the means, but the giver of the means. And I, I've just been freshly uh, pressed in my soul from this text in particular because throughout this passage, it never says, and Joseph went and sought the Lord in prayer before he made a decision. Now, did he? I would bet yes, but it doesn't say that. Over and over again, Joseph walks in godly wisdom and good, solid principles. And then when it's all done, wouldn't you find it a little weird if Joseph said, Israel is saved because I am really smart. He wouldn't do that. The Apostle Paul never comes out and goes, everybody, the church is booming because of my giftedness. He never does that. And so it's fascinating, beloved, that you have two pieces here where you have wise, godly doing and profound trusting in God's doing. They are not contradictory to one another. My Bible tells me with clarity, this is the life of the believer. Work hard, prepare, be wise, and trust him completely in the midst of it. This is very much the same for us today. We, Dan Mason... I'm called to place my full trust in the Lord and rest in His sovereign care. At the same time, the Bible is crystal clear in its call for me to be wise in my living in a crooked and perverse world. Fire extinguishers, car insurance, retirement funds, concealed weapons, seat belts, 
are all good, wise provisions. But the minute you put your trust in them as if now you've got it licked, you've missed the point. Put not your trust in princes. Put not your trust in horses. Put not your trust in the bow, the psalmist says over and over again. The big question really is, do you put your trust in the item or in the God at work? See, this is what's so interesting about the Christian life is that it's not as simple as we like to make it out to be where I'll just do my thing and then when it's all done, I can say, good, I did my thing and God let me do my thing and it turned out well because I made the right decision. That's too, it doesn't work. Too much Bible stops you with that. In the same vein, if you say, I don't have to do anything. Just trust God. I'll just trust God. He'll take care of everything and I don't have to do anything. I don't even have to call anybody or visit anybody or worry about anybody or pray about anybody. God's got it. You missed the point. The two are blessed, and the two come together, and here's the tough part, and I just plead ignorance here. Somewhere at some point, my doing and God's doing accomplish God's will. How all that comes together, ask Stuart Ford after the service. He'll tell you. I don't know. But here's my desire, beloved, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart as one of your pastors and as a, a, a theologian seeking out the truth of the word. I am so convinced both are there. Both are there where you and I are without excuse to be wise believers in this world, to make good decisions, to live carefully, and at the same time have complete and utter trust in God's sovereign care over us. Those two are blessed and needed in the church now more than it has ever been, I would argue. And so, if you wish to be wise, the scripture says, ask the Lord, petition him, and he will kindly give it to you. He will generously give you wisdom. And as we live wisely, and we see God's blessing in those moments, here's what's so fascinating about my Bible. Believers in my Bible always turn around and say, thanks be to God. Where you could potentially go up to them and say, now wait a second, I know you're thanking God, but you did it. And they never respond that way. They never respond by saying, I did it. Their response every time is, all glory be to God. How do those two go together? <clears throat> I'm going to ask in heaven, but I probably won't care when I get there. So I'm not too concerned about that. But um, as I walked through this text, I was just freshly stunned at the profound wisdom in Joseph, knowing that at the end, speaking to his own brothers, he says, God was the one that did it. Okay, Joseph, take you at your word. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray with all of my heart this